Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It's been argued that one of the only jobs a person can get wrong and still keep is that of a TV news meteorologist. If a weather person said it was going to be sunny in 75, but you should have brought your parka and a snow shovel, you might think twice about believing them in the future. That happens less and less these days, though, as modern technology allows forecasters to better track weather patterns and storm paths up to the minute. But back in 1838, that wasn't the case. And yet, Irish astrologer and meteorologist Patrick Murphy still managed to shock London with a forecast nobody could have predicted. Well, nobody except Patrick. He had come to England from Cork, Ireland in 1822. A few years later, he launched his first publication, titled An Inquiry into the Nature and Cause of Miasma of 1825. Miasma is defined as a vapor or fume that causes disease, like those coming off of a swamp. It's also used to describe an unsavory atmosphere. Patrick followed up his first book with a new one in 1830, entitled Rudiments of the Primary Forces in Gravity, Magnetism, and Electricity. These two books were the start of his foray into pseudoscientific writing about the various phenomena around us. Within his latest tome, he expounded on a multitude of topics, including the movement of the sun and planets, electrical forces, and the Earth's magnetic poles. These efforts all led to his magnum opus and the volume for which he is known to this day, Murphy's Weather Almanac for 1838. Now, the word almanac is believed to have come from the Greek word for calendar. It signifies books that were published with calendar entries for every day of the year, along with the various weather and astronomical phenomena expected on those dates. Almanacs have existed since before the 13th century, but they really picked up steam with the printing press. Among the most famous ever printed were the Poor Richard's Almanacs, published by Richard Saunders in 1732. Saunders, of course, was the pen name for founding father Benjamin Franklin. Murphy's Weather Almanac of 1838 wasn't much different from the compendiums that had come before. Each page was chock full of vital information, designed to help farmers and readers know what to expect for the coming year. Now, even though almanacs have claimed to be as high as 80% accurate, A study conducted by the University of Illinois in 1981 found that the popular Farmer's Almanac was only about 52% accurate in its forecasts. In other words, readers had just as much of a chance of successfully guessing the weather by pulling a prediction out of a hat. But Patrick thought better of his powers of prognostication, and one date in particular stuck out among all the others in his almanac, January 20th. You see, London winters were notoriously cold, In fact, as we've discussed here before, the Thames was known to freeze over every now and then, allowing locals to set up shop on the ice and hold frost fairs right on the river. Patrick, however, didn't just predict that January 20th would be cold. He claimed that the weather that day would be fair, with the lowest degree of winter temperature. When the day finally came, temperatures dropped a whopping 56 degrees to a frigid negative 14.8. It was by far the coldest day in recorded London history, and would be for some time. 
Patrick had been shockingly correct in his forecast, and as a result, there was a run on his almanac. He printed 45 editions to keep up with demand. Police were even called to one shop to help preserve order among the throngs of shoppers demanding the book. Unfortunately, readers didn't bother to peruse his publication before buying it. If they had, they would have realized that he was about as accurate as every other almanac out there. 168 days were half right in their predictions, while 197 were all wrong. Demand dropped like a thermometer on January 20th after that, but Patrick Murphy had already earned his legacy. In the years following, those who had survived the freezing temps of 1838 referred to that time as Murphy's Winter. He was never that accurate in his predictions again, and became something of a punchline later on. It seems that being a one-hit wonder in the almanac world was something that Murphy just couldn't weather. Man plans and God laughs. Expect the unexpected, or the old Boy Scout motto, be prepared. We have plenty of sayings that all revolve around the same idea. Stuff happens. And Edward was only too familiar with that concept. He was born in 1918 in the Panama Canal Zone, an unincorporated territory in Central America. Edward and his family eventually made their way north to New Jersey, where he lived for most of his young life. After high school, Edward attended West Point, which prepared him for entry into the United States Army Air Corps, just in time for World War II. It was in 1941 when he was sent overseas to serve in parts of China, India, and Burma. Edward had always had something of a scientific mind, so when the war was over and it came time for him to get a job, he found one as a research and development officer at Ohio's Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He stayed there for a short time until a special project came a-calling for him, from the West Coast. Over at Edwards Air Force Base in California, a series of rocket sled experiments were being managed by Colonel John Stapp. Rocket sleds were elongated platforms that slid on tracks, which used actual rockets to propel them long distances at high speeds. It was common belief among aerospace experts that the human body could not withstand up to 18 G-forces before dying. Stapp didn't agree and set out to prove the theory wrong. Previous tests to disprove it had been performed using crash test dummies. The goal was to track the effects of rapid deceleration on a human body. And Stapp, dissatisfied with the results, started using a chimpanzee in his experiments. But even that proved unsatisfactory to the exacting colonel. So he started testing the g-forces of the sleds on himself. He would strap himself onto the platform and let the rockets take him for a ride. On his first test, Stapp reached 10 g's. Over time, he was able to get that up to 35 Gs and still survive. Edward was tasked with analyzing the effects of these forces on Stapp's body. He'd done it before, having created a series of 16 sensors and tools meant to gauge how test pilots were affected during centrifugal training back in Ohio. He suggested using modified versions of his sensors for the rocket sled tests. Stapp agreed, and a new experiment was planned. Originally, the idea was to use another chimp as the test subject. The Air Force didn't want to sacrifice one of its own men in case something went wrong. But Stapp knew a human being had to be in the driver's seat, so he switched places with the chimpanzee. 
Rolling with the change, Edward told his assistants to rig up the sensors to Stapp's safety harness while he tested the rest of the equipment before takeoff. After several safety checks and clearances with the sensors in place, Stapp was given the green light. The rockets fired up, and the colonel flew along the track like a bat out of hell. When he finally stopped, Edward checked the readouts. Nothing. Not a single piece of evidence that Stapp had ever been buckled in at all. The experiment had failed. As it had turned out, Edward's assistants had wired the sensors all wrong. They'd been plugged in upside down. And Edward, angry at one assistant in particular, tossed off a short summation of his feelings, saying, If that guy has any way of making a mistake, he will. Stapp took his words to heart and conveyed them to a shared philosophy among the research team during a press conference. He explained the saying as a way of keeping his men on task and solving problems before they occurred. Although this being a press conference, the phrase was shortened down a bit. Edward's original wording was condensed to a simpler one. If it can happen, it will happen. Today, however, we say it even more different than that. Because without Edward A. Murphy, we wouldn't have Murphy's Law, which states, anything that can happen, will happen. Or perhaps more accurately, anything that can go wrong, will go wrong. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.